Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold first thing i want to talk about i think the most significant development during the week at least from the perspective of the market was the weakness in the u.s dollar and i talked about that on my last podcast but the dollar weakened considerably in the two days following that podcast. And in fact, the dollar closed about the low of the day on the Wednesday when I recorded that podcast earlier in the day. And again, this was in reaction to the better than expected uh, consumer price index that came out on, on Wednesday. And we actually got better than expected PPI data as well on Thursday. So that likely helped weaken the dollar. Again, this is all counterintuitive, ironic, that the dollar losing less purchasing power than anticipated means that the dollar loses uh, its purchasing power on international markets. So you would think it'd be the opposite, uh, but I've explained for many reasons why this is the case. But the PPI was supposed to come out at plus 0.2 for June, and instead it came out at plus 0.1, so better than expected. There was an even bigger improvement in the year-over-year increase, which was supposed to be 0.5, and that was a lot lower than the 1.1 from the prior uh, a month, year-over-year. That was revised down to up 0.9, and the June number came out at just 0.1, so barely positive. And even when you strip out the food and energy, the monthly increase was just 0.1. OK, 
compared to 0.2 estimates. And the year over year was supposed to be 2.8, which would have matched the prior month. And instead it came down to 2.4. So more uh, better than expected data on prices uh, weighing on the dollar on Thursday. And then again on Friday. So the dollar index actually dropped by 2.3% on the week. That may sound, not sound like a lot, but when it comes to foreign exchange for a currency like the dollar, that is a big move. Significantly, the dollar index closed below 100. We haven't been at this level since May of 2022. So that's pretty significant. Also, I think psychologically, getting below 100 could be significant. You know, the U.S. dollar rallied starting in January of 2021. That was kind of the, the low of the dollar. And we rallied from January of 2021 all the way through to September of 2022. That rally was almost 30%, maybe 29%. That is a huge rally. Now, since that peak, the dollar index is now down about 13%. It's still up a lot but not nearly as much as it was. But what's significant about this is the main reason that the inflation numbers have come down as much as they have. I mean, even though we haven't come anywhere close to 2% on a year-over-year -year basis, we're a lot lower than we were, thanks in large part to the strength of the dollar. That acted as a tightening all by itself. Yes, you had the Fed raising rates. You had the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. But you also had the dollar going up. That helped the Fed. That was a tightening in and of itself. Monetary conditions tighten when the dollar goes up. And so that helped bring down prices. Think about it from this perspective. Commodity prices are priced in dollars, at least for now. That's how they're quoted. That's how they're traded by and large. And so if the dollar goes up by... 30%, those prices go up by 30% for every other country. And so that really results in a reduction in demand because of that huge increase in price. That brings down the price and that benefits the U.S. because we have dollars. We create dollars. So we don't see a price increase in commodities when the dollar goes up. We actually get a benefit because more of our international uh, competitors who are bidding for those same resources get priced out. Their demand goes down because they're looking at these higher prices. And so then we get the benefit of lower prices. So the dollar, the foreign exchange market was doing a lot of the Fed's work. It was tightening without the Fed having to hike rates more. And a lot of the strength in the dollar was a byproduct of just rhetoric. The Fed being very tough, all that tough talk about how they were gonna keep on fighting and doing whatever it takes to bring down inflation, that got you know, factored into the dollar. In fact, the dollar started to rally even before the Fed started hiking. It was because the Fed started to indicate that it was going to hike. The foreign currency markets got in front of that and started to discount those rate hikes and that tighter policy and the dollar started going up. Well, the dollar is now falling because the foreign currency markets are, again, forward-looking. They know that the Fed 
is either done hiking or close enough to the peak that the next significant move that the markets are looking for is an ease and that's being priced in. But the fact that the dollar is already falling, again, that counts as an ease. So even if the Fed continues to hike, if the dollar keeps falling, that effect will be larger than the rate hikes. And so even though the Fed would be hiking rates, the weakness in the dollar will actually be negating those hikes and will have the effect of a cut because it will be loosening uh, monetary conditions. And as I've been saying, the weakness in the dollar is going to result in strength in commodity prices. Oil prices closed at about $75.20 on, on the week. We were actually down on Friday, but we've been gathering a lot of momentum. Other commodities, silver in particular, has been particularly strong, not just because gold was strong, but silver is also an industrial metal, a commodity in that respect. And it is um, also moving with, uh, with the dollar and inflation. Anyway, let me take a quick commercial break. Uh, so stick around. We will be right back with a lot more of the Peter Schiff Show uh, live from uh, Mykonos, Greece. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. In addition to the dollar selling off on the week, the bond market rose a bit and yields came down on the back of the better than expected inflation numbers. But again, Anybody looking at these numbers is looking in the rear view mirror. They need to look forward at the weakness of the dollar and the impact that's going to have on prices, import prices, energy prices, everything, and how that's going to affect future CPI increases. The markets, again, haven't figured this out. I think if you look at where the dollar is right now, We could fall very quickly from where we are down to about 90. And that's a 10% drop. That still wouldn't erase 100% of the dollar's rise since January of 2021, but it would erase most of it. Uh, And I think that's going to be an initial support area for the dollar. And I probably think that the markets won't be particularly concerned about the dollar as long as we're above that 90 level. But I think once we crack it, uh, you're 
going to see uh, some type of panic setting in in the bond market or in the foreign exchange market. And if it doesn't happen at 90, there will be a breaking point somewhere along the way. Remember, the record low for the dollar was just above 70 back in 2008 before it was saved, ironically, by the financial crisis. The next crisis is really a currency crisis, U.S. dollar crisis. I don't know if it's going to take a break to all-time record lows to precipitate that crisis, but if that's what it's going to take, that's what it's going to happen because the dollar is going to take out that low. Either that's going to happen and cause the crisis or that's going to happen as a result of the crisis, but one way or another, we're getting the crisis. Now, the gold market should smell that out well in advance. And I think gold will start hitting new highs before the dollar hits new lows. In fact, long before the dollar hits new lows. In fact, looking at what happened with the gold stocks this week, very significant gains. The GDX was up 8.7% on the week. And the juniors, the GDXJ was up 9.5%. So as I was saying on my last couple of podcasts, these stocks have really been beaten down. Uh, and even with this rally, they're still a good buy. I mean, they were a better buy on the last couple of podcasts when I pointed out how cheap they were. Well, they're a little less cheap now, but it's still not too late by any chance uh, you know, to buy these things. I mean, it's still really, really early. Now, of course, the gold stocks weren't the only stocks that were up on the week. Pretty much everything was up on the week. Uh, the NASDAQ, NASDAQ 100 hit new highs. Uh, not record highs, but new 52-week highs on Friday. Interesting enough, the NASDAQ uh, and the S&P closed negative on Friday. Now, I don't know that this was a big enough reversal to constitute, you know, an end of this. You know, NVIDIA hit a new high uh, on the day, a new record high for NVIDIA. It also closed down about a percent on, on Friday. But again, it's too small a decline uh, to say it constitutes some kind of significant reversal. We just have to keep our eye on it. Eventually, there is going to be a reversal. You know, the ARK Innovation ETF was up 11% on the week, even though it fell 2% on, on Friday. So there was some profit taking on Friday in these tech stocks, even though, uh, let's say, the Dow was up 2.3% on the week. It was also up on Friday, I think it was the only of the major indexes to be up on Friday. Russell 2000 also down on Friday, but still up 3.6% on the week. The biggest loser, though, on Friday was Bitcoin. Uh, the GBTC, Bitcoin Trust, still eked out a 0.3% gain on the week. But all of its weekly gains, or most of them, were wiped out by a 7.6% plunge on Friday. In fact, there was a lot of volatility in Bitcoin Thursday and Friday because you got a court ruling that Ripple was not a security, which is a good ruling. Uh, and that good news sent Ripple soaring. And, you know, it took the rest of the crypto market with it. Bitcoin got back above 31,000. But of course, whenever there's so-called good news in crypto, there's always a pump that is immediately followed by a dump. And that's exactly what happened. I think Ripple dropped about 25% on Friday, took the rest of the crypto market down with it. Bitcoin, which had gotten above 31,000, sold off to below 30,000. I mean, it's back above that level now as I'm doing this podcast, but we had all of that volatility. You know, there's been other news, of course, that has been driving uh, Bitcoin 
One is the prospects of an ETF, a Bitcoin ETF uh, that is going to be brought out by Blackstone. And I was listening to the CEO, um, uh, uh, Larry Fink, who was on CNBC doing an interview, and he's turned into a typical Bitcoin shill. You know, this is the same type of conversion that guys like Kevin O'Leary made with FTX because Larry Fink used to be a critic of Bitcoin. But now that he thinks he can make some money off of Bitcoin, all of a sudden he's a big pumper. And so he was on this interview on CNBC saying some absurd things. So first of all, he said that gold, that the cost of trading physical gold was absurd or buying gold. He didn't say trading, buying. He said the cost to buy physical gold is absurd. And so he was trying to say that ETFs uh, democratized gold and made it so the average guy could buy gold because it was just prohibitively expensive to buy physical gold, which is complete nonsense. I was selling physical gold, you know, before that ETF came into existence. And the cost to buy gold is not absurd. It's one or 2%. I mean, if you buy from a reputable dealer like Shift Gold, that's all it costs. That's not high. And then you can store it yourself. It costs you nothing. Gold has already been democratized. It didn't need the ETF. What the ETF did was made it easier, let's say, to buy it in an IRA, or it made it easier to trade gold. Yes, if you want to day trade gold, yes, the cost of day trading one ounce maple leaves, yes, that would be uh, prohibitive. That would be absurd. But I was never selling gold coins to day traders, selling gold coins to people that want to hold on to them for a long period of time. In that case, it's cheaper than the ETF because the ETF has a storage fee that you have to pay. So if you're holding on to an ETF for 10 years, that's a lot more expensive than holding on to your own uh, you know, gold maple leaves. But so what Larry Fink was really talking about was that the ETF made it easier to day trade gold, not own gold. But now he's trying to say the same BS for Bitcoin. This is the irony of it. He was talking crypto, 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 not so much Bitcoin. But he said that this ETF was going to do for Bitcoin what the gold ETF did for gold, because he said the cost of trading Bitcoin on your own is absurd. It's so expensive and so cumbersome to actually buy crypto that they're doing everybody a favor by creating this ETF that now lets everybody buy crypto who couldn't buy it before, which is nonsense. The whole value proposition for Bitcoin or other crypto is that it eliminates the need for a third party. It eliminates the precise ETF that Larry Fink is creating that he thinks adds value to Bitcoin. If he's going to argue that Bitcoin is too expensive and too cumbersome to actually trade, and therefore you need an ETF, he's just undermined the main value proposition of Bitcoin itself. And so if Bitcoin doesn't have any value until you put it into an ETF, then what exactly are you putting into that ETF that has value? You're putting nothing. The whole argument is, is absurd because it contradicts itself. You know, this ETF is going to have a custody fee. There is no custody fee to store your own Bitcoin. So why the hell do you need to pay Blackstone money to store something that you could just as easily store yourself 
from free, for free. Look, he does not believe in Bitcoin or crypto or anything else. He's motivated by a desire to make some money off this ETF. And that's the reason he's flipped. Just like Kevin O'Leary got paid by Bankman Freed a bunch of money to go out and pump FTX, even though he didn't even believe in it. That's what's going on with Larry Fink. This guy is laughing all the way to the bank. He's out there pumping up something that he has no interest in owning himself. He doesn't believe in. He's just trying to make a buck. This is what Wall Street does. This is the history of, of Wall Street. You know, they're, they, they care about themselves, right? That's their, their, their main uh, mission. And they've been protected by the SEC. They've been protected by, uh, by, by FINRA. You know, people think, oh, you know, these guys are all government regulated, so they must be, you know, they must be okay. You know, there's a watchdog there to, to make sure they don't rip me off. No, you got to be your own watchdog. The government is not going to help you. In fact, that is a a, a good segue into uh, another topic that I wanted to discuss. Probably a good time to take a quick commercial break. So let's do that. And I'm going to pick it up with uh, this other topic and more after that break. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. I was talking about uh, the SEC and FINRA, and there are... Uh, these legal cases that have been going through the courts, and I want to make people aware of them. Uh, I actually know several of the people that are involved here. One in particular, this guy, Justin Keener, who's uh, recently lost this case, was sued by the SEC. And the SEC is now, with the help of the lower courts, dramatically expanding its, its, its role. The SEC was started about... 90 years ago, it was an overreaction to the Great Depression. We, we would be much better off today if we didn't have an SEC. But we do, thanks to the, what the government did, right? Because the government never lets a crisis go to waste. So the stock market crashes. And so the government uses that crash to get more power uh, over uh, the, the, the markets. And so the original intent of the SEC, and in fact, the law today, it's still there to protect the public to protect the small investor from from Wall Street, right? Because small investors got hurt during the crash. And so the government said, oh, okay, so we need government to protect people so they don't get hurt. Of course, the best protection for the public is a free market. 
It's not because we didn't have enough regulation that people lost money during uh, the not, uh, 2000, 1929 crash. We've had many crashes since then with the SEC and people have lost a lot of money. So the SEC didn't stop market crashes. The SEC didn't stop people from losing money. In fact, I'm sure a lot more people have lost a lot more money because of the SEC. Uh, uh, and, and so we, we shouldn't have it. But what's going on now is Justin Keener and some other people, he was funding uh, small cap companies, companies that trade over the counter on the pink sheets. He was providing them with capital, capital that they had no other way to get. They were very risky companies. They couldn't tap into traditional financing to get money. So they went for guys like Keener and a lot of other guys who would loan them money at a reasonable term, maybe eight, 10%. But there was, you know, the rates were actually a little higher, but they were the best rates these companies can get. But it was generally done in the form of a convertible note where uh, the lender at his discretion could convert the note into stock and then sell the stock into the market. Now, if that happened, the company wouldn't have to repay the money because once you converted from uh, debt to equity, you now had stock in the company and you could just sell the stock into the market, assuming there was a market uh, to buy the stock and you can make money. And some of these guys were making a lot of money net. I mean, they didn't bat a thousand. Uh, they lost a lot of money uh, on some of these deals, but you know they were able to make up for it uh, with the deals that were profitable. But anyway, the SEC came after him and some other people and they said, you need, you're, 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 uh, buying and selling stocks for a living, you need to be registered or you should have been registered as a broker dealer, but you weren't a broker dealer. And so we're suing you for buying and selling stocks and not being a broker dealer, but they were buying and selling stocks for their own account. They had no customers. Broker dealers are supposed to deal with customers, not for themselves. And so he makes this point and he actually lost a the SEC one, a summary judgment in the lower court. And the court actually ruled that Keener met the definition of a dealer, quote, because he operated a regular business of buying and selling securities for his own account. But that's not the definition. If you go to the SEC's website today, they exempt people trading for their own account. It's meant to protect customers. So if you are buying and selling stocks on behalf of other people, and you're charging those other people a commission, then you need to be registered as a dealer. If you're just making investments for yourself, doesn't matter if that's your source of living. If you do that and you don't have another job, if that's the only thing you do is buy and sell securities for yourself, you're not a dealer. But now, according to the lower court, you are a dealer. Now, the SEC wants Keener to disgorge all the profits he made doing this plus interest, plus penalties. It's more than a $10 million judgment. You know, initially they wanted to ignore the losers and cherry pick the winners. They were able to at least get them to give credit for the money he lost, right? So he, he didn't just pay taxes. It, they don't just want back the gains. It's the net. But still, you pay income taxes on the gains. You don't get the ta income tax back. So the government actually ends up making a lot more uh, than the individual investor because he has to pay back all of his profits 
but he's already paid taxes on the profits to the IRS. You can't get those back. You can't write off the fine. Then the SEC wants prejudgment interest. They want over a million dollars in penalties. And you have a lot of other people in the security industry that are interested in this case that have filed, you know, amicus briefs on behalf of Keener or others, because what the government is doing here is they're trying to get the camel's nose under the tent. Right now, they're focusing on a narrow subset of traders. These are people who were trading in convertible debt. But if they can say that these traders are dealers and need to register, then everybody, not just a mutual fund, an insurance company, a hedge fund, a pension fund, but everybody who just trades stock on a Robinhood app, if that's your primary source of income, maybe you're retired or all you are is a day trader and you're just trading for yourself, according to this, you now need to be registered as a broker dealer. This is how the government usurps power. It's up to the courts to rein in uh, government when they're going beyond their statutory or constitutional authority. And that is clearly what the SEC is doing uh, by going after these guys. But, you know, there's other examples of this. You know, there's a there's a case in court that is before the Supreme Court now that everybody should be looking at. And I, I talked a lot about this in, in, in the past as well, about direct versus indirect taxes and how the 16th Amendment doesn't give the government unlimited taxing power to tax whatever it wants uh, directly without apportionment. It can only tax income without apportionment, and it can't redefine income. In fact, it can't define income at all. Income, it has a legal definition. That's why the Internal Revenue Code doesn't even define income. It defines gross income in Section 61, but it never defines income. And so you can't define a word using the word, right? Like you can't define uh, a big dog by saying it's a dog only bigger. Well, what's a dog? I don't know. I can't, I don't know what a big dog is until I know what a dog is. Well, you can't define gross income without defining income. Well, where is income defined if it's not defined in the Internal Revenue Code? It's defined by the Supreme Court because the government can't define income because then it could change the, the de Constitution. It could amend the definition. It can amend the Constitution by changing the definition of income. So the courts have to define income and the courts have. And what is not income is unrealized gains, a wealth tax is not income. If you want to tax wealth, well, that's a direct tax. You have to amend the constitution. It's unconstitutional to call it income. Now, what's going on and why this a case has significance for a wealth tax or any attempt by the U.S. government to tax unrealized appreciation and call it income is this case is going after a provision of the Trump, uh, you know, you know, Jobs Act or Tax Cut and Jobs Act. I forget the title. But they had a deemed repatriation tax that helped fund it. And it gave the government, I don't know, hundreds of millions or billions. I'm not sure how much the government collected. I paid that tax myself. I had uh, some, uh, you know, in, not income, but I had uh, offshore investments in my bank, actually. It was because I owned my bank, which I no longer even own. And I never got a nickel of dividends. And I ultimately lost all my money. I ended up having to pay a tax. On, on some accumulated earnings that the bank had that were never paid out to me that were held as capital by the bank. But this case correctly, and I read the brief, it makes the argument that this is not income. 
that this tax was unconstitutional because by no definition can these undistributed uh, gains from the prior five years be deemed income in any given taxable year. And so the, the, um, the case is asking the court to declare this tax unconstitutional. But if the court does it, they will be reaffirming going forward and sending a clear message to Congress and the White House that any attempt to tax unrealized gains or wealth is unconstitutional unless it's apportioned, which it never will be done. And I don't want to get into apportionment again on this podcast. I don't have that much time. I've talked about that on other podcasts and why it's so important. Remember, the U.S. government doesn't have uh, unlimited taxing power. The taxing power is limited by the Constitution, specifically when it comes to direct taxes. The framers of the Constitution did not want the U.S. government to even levy direct taxes unless it was an emergency, like a war. That's why they made it so difficult. That's why they subjected it to the rule of apportionment. They believed that most government revenue during peacetime would come from excise taxes, which don't have to be apportioned. They just have to be uniform throughout the 50 states. I mean, 50 now, 13 back then. But it was very difficult to levy a, a direct tax. The income tax was declared unconstitutional. We got the 16th Amendment to allow the government to tax income uh, without apportionment, but nothing else. All other forms of direct taxation, if they're not on income, are still subject to the constitutional rule of apportionment. And again, the meaning of income must be set by the, by the courts, and it has been set. The government cannot change it. Now, we'll see what happens because, look, uh, the courts ruled that uh, the student debt relief was unconstitutional, yet that hasn't stopped the Biden administration from now uh, tweaking the laws on uh, student debt forgiveness. They've now changed it on their own again. And so you only have to pay, if it's an income-based repayment plan, you only have to pay 5% of your income in repayments. And now after 10 years, if your total debt is 12,000 or less, the entire thing gets forgiven. So what that means is if you borrow $37,000 and you earn $50,000 a year on average over 10 years, after 10 years, you're, you're fully repaid on your loan after only paying back 67.5% of the principal and no interest. So what that means is nobody is going to pay $37,000 if they can borrow $37,000 and just pay back $25,000 with no interest over 10 years. So the government encourages people who might otherwise have paid for college to borrow the money instead because they're not going to have to pay it back. But what's even more significant is when you have these income qualifications, no more than 5% of your income, you're kind of indifferent between borrowing $37,000 or borrowing $100,000 or $200,000. Because regardless, your, your payments, your monthly payments are the same. The colleges know this. They take advantage of this by jacking up tuitions even farther. Tuition has skyrocketed since Obama came in and took over the student loans, which is exactly what I predicted. You know, every time the government makes it easier 
for people not to repay their student loans, to pay back less than they owe. The result of that is that student loan debt grows even faster. College tuitions rise even higher. That's why we have better than $1.81 trillion of student debt. It's because of what the government is doing. And based on what the Biden administration just did, right, this is a green light for more debt, higher tuition. And so we're going to hit $3 trillion in college debt a lot sooner as a result of what the Biden administration is doing. Hopefully, uh, we'll get a way to get this thrown out, too. But it's very difficult uh, to get uh, to get stuff up to the Supreme Court, which is why I think it's so important that we get a ruling on this direct tax case. You know, the government might try to argue that, well, you know, we, we can't have the government rule on a tax that hasn't even been imposed. That's true. But this particular unconstitutional tax on uh, uh, on deemed repatriation as income, that's there. That's a new tax. It's never been done before. So the Supreme Court could strike it down uh, without completely unraveling the income tax, which really should be done because pretty much every aspect of the income tax is unconstitutional. But the court is not being asked to make that sweeping of a rule ruling. It's just on this one uh, extreme example of an unconstitutional tax. But if the court rules this way, it will effectively create a barrier uh, to future taxes of a, a state tax, which is much better than waiting for the government to actually impose an unconstitutional, unapportioned direct tax on wealth, and then wait for somebody else to challenge it and make it all the way up to the Supreme Court, because that could take years to happen. And in the meantime, the damage would be substantial, having people pay this tax and then having the government refund the money years later. It's much better for the Supreme Court to get out in front of it. And hopefully uh, the, the, the government will, will listen to, uh, to the court. But I wanted to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about my own case. The Daily Wire did an excellent expose on what happened to me and my bank. And this article came out last week, and it was very well received by the you know Daily Wire you know audience, the people who are normally you know looking at that content. What's surprising me, although I guess it doesn't surprise me because nothing surprised me at this point, but that no other conventional media sources, even websites, nobody is picking up on this story. This, I think, is a huge story of government corruption. And again, this is not just some flunky, some lowly IRS agent. This is all the way at the top. This is the number one uh, cop at the IRS. And he has roped into this conspiracy the top cops in Australia, in the UK, in Canada. This is all the way at the top of five countries that have conspired right, uh, to, uh, to present this false narrative, right? To not, not, they didn't just destroy my bank uh, just to get me. I mean, yeah, they wanted to get me, but there was, this is something much bigger at stake here. Uh, they are trying to intimidate people based on this action. But also more important than that, look what they did to me. 
Because if the government could do this to me, then they could do it to anybody, right? If they can tear up the Constitution to get me, well, then they can tear it up to get anybody. Again, it's like the camel's nose under the tent. It's like the SEC going after these convertible debt traders. They get away with this, uh, then they can expand and, and get everybody ensnared in the same net. The same thing here. If the government can do this to me, again, what did they do to me? They investigated me for crimes based solely on my political views that I have expressed uh, you know, by my freedom of speech. So they said, here's this Peter Schiff guy. We don't like what he's saying politically. And so we're going to investigate him criminally because maybe he's committing crimes and then we can put this guy in jail for the crimes that he committed, right? And then they can silence me that way. Well, they launched this massive criminal investigation and they find nothing, right? There may be eight or nine months into the investigation and they're getting very frustrated because they're finding absolutely no evidence that I broke any laws. Because just like was reported by the Daily Wire, I am not an idiot. I am not going to break the laws that I publicly criticize. You know, the people who, who criticize the laws follow the laws. The people who break the laws keep quiet about it. They want to fly beneath the radar. You don't criticize laws and then break them. You do what Sam Bankman-Fried did. You praise the laws and then you break them, right? You, you want to pretend that you're following the laws and that you love the laws. You pretend that you don't even care about making money. You don't even want to make money. You're just, you're just an altruist, right? You, know, you want to be one of the good guys. You virtue signal uh, and, and then you break the law, right? Well, I didn't virtue signal. I didn't, I didn't play any of those games. I was honest and I honestly criticized the tax laws. I honestly criticized the Patriot Act and the anti-money laundering laws. And one of the reasons that I was able to criticize them was because I abided by them. And I knew firsthand how destructive they were, how much they cost everybody, not just in money, but in loss of freedom and loss of liberty. I don't like these laws from so many different vantage points. And I criticized them. And because I criticized them, I got targeted. But anyway, they find out that I haven't broken any laws. This massive, global, unprecedented uh, investigation was a complete waste of time. So what do they do? Do they end the investigation? No, they leak the investigation to the media. They tell the media that, that they believe that we're doing all this stuff, knowing they have no evidence that we did it. But they tell the, the, the media, hey, we think Peter Schiff and his bank did all this bad stuff. And now the media takes that leaked information, which was illegally leaked, and now they run all these stories to say, hey, Peter Schiff is under this massive investigation, unprecedented in size. Five governments from around the world are all investigating him and his bank. Well, gee, I must be guilty. I mean, if five governments are after me, I mean, God, I got to be guilty. The bank's got to be guilty, right? I mean, after all, this is unprecedented. We've got the top cops on this case, right? I must be guilty. Uh, and, and then, of course, oh, my God, he's a free market conservative. He's a libertarian. Well, sure, that just solidifies it. Right. And then they use my politics to claim I'm guilty. Right. Then nothing happens. Right. The government keeps on investigating me for another year, hoping they're going to find something. They come up completely empty. They investigate thousands of counts. They can't find a single example of any account being used for money laundering or tax evasion, let alone the fact that the bank helped. 
right? Which of course we didn't do. So it's completely comes up empty. But I've been destroyed by the media, by the accusations. The bank is gone. And in fact, you know, what, what, why was the bank not sold? In the cease and desist letter, the only reason that the Puerto Rican regulators gave for now not allowing me to sell my bank, which I had it sold for 25 million bucks in stock and cash, was because of the stock component. They said, you can't sell this bank because you're still going to own four and a half percent of the parent company. And we can't allow that because of all the bad publicity about you. We don't want you owning four and a half percent of a bank. Well, if they don't want me owning four and a half percent of a bank. They clearly don't want me owning 100 percent of the bank, which is what I own, which is why the bank was shut down, which is why it was put into receivership, despite not being insolvent. Again, the article uh, uh, in the um, Daily Wire points out that the pretense under which my bank was closed was that it was insolvent, that it was critically insolvent. But it wasn't. There were millions of dollars more than was owed to the depositors. And we had no debt. We had no past due bills. The, re the receiver, the incompetent receiver that was put in charge, at least he was able to confirm that. At least he saw that we didn't need him because we, we didn't have any debt. We weren't insolvent. So, But they had to come up with a pretense. They couldn't legally say we're closing the bank because of bad publicity. But they let the cat out of the bag uh, in that cease and desist because that was the only reason they gave for turning down the sale. They didn't give that reason for shutting down the bank, but they gave that reason for turning down the sale. Because when you're trying to sell a bank to somebody else, the new buyers have to be vetted and they have to be, you know, clean on the up and up, right? Your reputation is important. They don't want to allow somebody with a bad reputation to buy a bank. So they didn't let Kinta buy my bank because I was one of the owners and I had a bad reputation. But I already owned the bank. I already owned 100% of the bank. <laughs> so why can't they let me reduce my, my ownership down to um, 4%? They wouldn't. But they point out this whole thing is a farce because the government got me anyway. And so if this is allowed, right, if the government gets away with this, then they can take down anybody they want. You see, it's very easy to accuse somebody of something when you have no evidence. You just make an accusation, start an investigation, then you leak the fact that there's an investigation to your partners in the media. Then they go out and claim you're guilty. And then that's it. You win. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to prove anything. You can destroy somebody based on an, an, an allegation. That is why a, a grand jury investigation is supposed to be kept secret to protect me and everybody else who is investigated for a crime because you can't be tainted by an investigation because a lot of investigations find nothing, right? You don't want, the, you know, let's say you're going to get investigated for child abuse or rape. Do you want those investigations to be out there? You know, no, because people are going to assume that you're guilty, even if you never get charged. Maybe they'll just think, oh, they couldn't find enough evidence, so he's probably guilty anyway. He got lucky. He got a good lawyer. And, you know, the thing is, they come out with the news that you're being investigated, and maybe that story is blanketed all over the world, but the fact that you're never charged, that's not a story. Think about, or look at all of the newspapers around the world, all the internet stories that were about this investigation. There hasn't been a single story other than the Daily Wire that says that the investigation came up empty. Nobody knows but people who read this article that I'm innocent. 
All they know is that I was probably guilty because they read all these stories. It's not like 60 Minutes Australia or even the New York Times, right? I mean, I sued 60 Minutes Australia, right? So they're they're pissed at me because I sued them. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm the one that should be pissed at them because they, they lied about me. But I didn't sue the New York Times because I thought that the New York Times could could say they relied in good faith on 60 Minutes, right? That they thought what they were saying was true because, you know, the 60 Minutes broadcast came first. The Age article came first. And so they used that as their source. Well, they've never admitted. The New York Times, the reporter, uh, Matthew Goldstein, who wrote that article in New York Times about this massive investigation of me and about the 60 Minutes interview that I walked out on, he has yet to run a report telling New York Times readers, oh, by the way, you remember that massive Operation Atlantis, that unprecedented investigation for money laundering and tax ev uh, evasion that we said was investigating your Pacific Bank and Peter Schiff? Well, you know what? It came up empty. It turns out the bank wasn't helping anybody launder money or evade taxes. Oh, well, you know, it went out of business anyway. All the bad press, you know, because we, we ran the article. If the New York Times had any sense of... Um, dignity, any professionalism, any integrity. They wouldn't have run the story. Even if you get the information, if you know it's been illegally leaked, you don't use it. You don't exploit it. That is, that is the problem. You know, and, you know, they probably wouldn't have done it, but for my politics, right? You know, they, 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 may, have, they may have done me the courtesy of, of keeping the information private and waiting for an actual indictment, waiting for actual charges. But that's what the, the IRS agent, he had no legal authority to travel to Puerto Rico and to hold a press conference to talk about an investigation that resulted in no charges. That was another crime committed by the number one cop at the IRS. The guy in charge of prosecuting other people is himself a criminal. He needs to be prosecuted. We need to have a widespread movement out there to get to the bottom of this, right? This article by the Daily Wire, this is good. It's not just me saying this. This is an independent reporter who wrote this. He contacted the IRS. He asked them a bunch of questions. They refused to answer any of his questions. He contacted OSIF in Puerto Rico. They refused to answer a single question. Contacted the receiver of the bank, refused to answer a single question. You have these government people that are refusing to talk to a reporter. Now, why? If they could justify their actions, they would do it. They know he's writing a story. They don't want to comment on it. Why? Because they know that what they did was illegal. And so there's nothing they can say. So they're just going to keep quiet and hope nobody notices. Well, I want people to notice. In fact, I uh, tweeted at Elon Musk today because, you know, the, the guy's got the article up on, on Twitter. And I'm hoping that maybe Elon Musk will, will retweet it or make a comment on it. I mean, I think we got to do whatever we can. To, you know, you find this tweet on, you know, the one that I retweeted and, and tagged Elon Musk. I think it's got about maybe four or 5,000 likes, maybe a thousand retweets. It needs to have a lot more. We need to get this issue front and center. You know, there are a lot of people that say, Peter, why do you keep talking about this? You know, nobody really cares. This isn't important. This is very important. Again, it's not just about me. Sure, I'm pissed off at what happened to me. 
I'm pissed off about the money I lost. I pissed off. I'm pissed off that I have thousands of customers that haven't had any access to their money in over a year. Why? The money's been there the entire time. It's just bogged down in all this government bureaucracy. All the money was there. This is unnecessary suffering on the part of innocent people. But it's beyond that. This is about every American's individual liberty and freedom because we have no freedoms. If the government is this powerful, if it has no checks on what it can do, if it can destroy political enemies the way it's doing it, then we have no freedom left. We're like a banana republic in the United States. I mean, we're out there now. We're, we're trying to help the Ukrainians right, uh, fight off the Russians. This is much bigger than that. What about protecting Americans from their own government? This is where we should be concerned. Sure, we want the Ukrainians to be free, but we need Americans to be free first, right? Let's take care of our own country first. Let's restore freedom and liberty in America before we start worrying about what's happening in the Ukraine. This is much bigger. There's 300 million of us, right? And so we need to do something. Congress needs to check the executive branch. The courts need to check the executive branch. This is not King Obama, right? He doesn't have the ability. He's, you know, they like to talk about, oh, Putin's a dictator. Well, what about Obama? You know, the U.S. government is acting like dictators, right, when they're doing this stuff. So we need to bring attention to it. You know, Twitter may be one of the last bastions of free speech left. So maybe we could, uh, you know, help uh, get a groundswell on Twitter about this. Uh, you know, no reporters have contacted me. I talked to uh, the Daily Wire reporter, he had expected that, well, he would be contacted. Maybe people would want to interview him about the story. No. I mean, this story is Pulitzer Prize written material. I mean, I think this is a much bigger deal than like Watergate. And, you know, you had uh, the, 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 uh, the, the press, right, blow the lid on Watergate. What, what was really Watergate? Watergate was one group of politicians spying on another group of politicians, right? That's really what was going on. So Woodward and Birdstrings, you know, hey, their whole career is made because they ferret out this break-in of politicians. This is much worse, right? Because it's important constitutional rights. My right of not to be deprived of property without due process. My right of the presumption of, intimate, of innocence. My right of freedom of speech, right? All these rights are being thrown aside. But if the government can do it to me, and get away with it, they can do it to anybody. And, you know, and, and so you got to take a stand. You got to draw a line and, and put a break on this. And again, this is up at the top of, of the U.S. government. You can't get much higher than this. And, and, and so far, nothing has happened. You know, a lot of people are looking for examples or a way to prove that the IRS targets political adversaries. You know, there is a lot of talk that the IRS was targeting the Tea Party or other conservatives, maybe they didn't have any proof. Well, you know what? I've got the proof. It's all there. We need a congressional investigation into what happened. The IRS agent needs to be forced to come before Congress. Um, Jim Lee, he needs to answer questions about what happened under oath, about Operation Atlantis, about the J-5, about what happened with OSIF about whether or not he pressured Osif into turning down the sale to Kinta. You know, all the stuff, this coordinated conspiracy to deprive me of my rights and 
bring in uh, the media and use the media to spread government propaganda and fake news. All of this has to come under, under congressional scrutiny and hopefully criminal prosecutions. Not just that Jim Lee should get fired for what he did. He should be charged because remember the IRS charges other people with tax evasion and puts them in jail. Well, if the person who is in charge of that is committing crimes, he's got to go to jail too. We talk about nobody being above the law. People want to say, well, Donald Trump is not above the law. So they trump up these BS charges. Well, neither is the top cop at the IRS. He's not above the law either. He has to obey the law. He has to abide by the constitution. All these people swear oaths to obey the constitution. Well, let's hold them accountable but they also have to follow the rules. It's the government officials that are most uh, need to be held accountable because they have all this power and they can abuse this power. Abuse of power is a huge threat to individual liberty. So it's more important that government officials obey the law than ordinary citizens. So if we're going to go after ordinary citizens when they break the law, then we damn bell, well better go after the government when they break the law, especially the cops who are enforcing the laws. They themselves need to obey the laws that they enforce. Otherwise, it's sheer hypocrisy and tyranny. Anyway, that's it for now. I'm finishing up with this podcast. I think I'm going to do one more podcast uh, before I go back from the States, uh, from Athens, uh, which is my last stop on this trip. And then I am back to Connecticut. And hopefully, uh, you know, these podcasts will be able to go through more seamlessly. Anyway, bye for now. And uh, thanks, everybody, for, for listening and watching.